Hey everybody, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. My name is Zach and I am podcasting solo this week without my podcasting partner, Krista. I'm uh, podcasting live from the fabulous and beautiful campus of Utah State University up in Logan. Krista and the kids are in St. George while I'm up here at school for three weeks. Um, I get little snippets of seeing them as they uh, Skype or Duo call me each night. They're not very good at holding the phone still, so I only get the top of their head or maybe their nostrils, but those are the kids, not not Krista. But uh, So I'm missing them, but I am excited to be able to do this episode, even without uh, Krista here, because of what it can do for you and what it's done for me and what it's done for people that are struggling with questions, doubts or um, maybe even struggling a little bit with their faith. In fact, the next couple of episodes we're going to do, this one and the next one and maybe even the next one, all deal with the ideas or the, the wrestle we often have with our faith. And so um, hopefully these next couple of episodes can strengthen you and help you and fortify you. So study tip for this episode, though, comes from a discussion I had just recently with someone in my ward about uh, some patterns we were observing about teaching in the ward. And uh, one of the patterns we noticed is that teachers um, will often do one of two different things when they teach class. And these are kind of extremes. Uh, Number one, teachers will go into class and they will say, all right, everybody open up to, they'll name the chapter or they'll name the page and let's read. And so they'll read and they'll ask a couple of questions and for 45 minutes we just discuss whatever's there. Now that's not bad, um, but I think some teachers in a sense that class has to be more exciting, which often it should be, uh, go to the opposite end. And so what they'll do is they'll devise something at the beginning of the lesson that's really catchy and really fun, like a, a, a video or a story or a TED talk or asking an intriguing question which is wonderful, except that beginning part tends to become really, really long. And so we're 15, 20 minutes in before we've ever actually gotten into the scriptures. And so when we get into the scriptures, it's usually a a quick summary and maybe a verse or two that we read. As I was thinking about this, I thought this kind of reminds me of diving off of a diving board into a swimming pool. You want to be able to do two things. Number one, You want to be able to jump on the diving board. That's essential to getting deep in the pool. If you just get in the pool and start swimming around, you can never really get the depth that you can get if you use the diving board. And so there is a place at the beginning of a lesson to put something intriguing, something relevant, something that captures the attention of the people you're teaching. And the best way I know to do this is to ask yourself the question, why should this lesson matter? to the people I'm going to teach? Why does it make a difference? Or how could it make a difference for them? Why are they going to care about it? Now, the caution is, if you're going to jump on a diving board, you do have to actually jump into the pool. Sometimes we jump on the diving board figuratively in a lesson and we just keep jumping over and over and over and over again and we never actually get into the pool. The pool is where you want to get. That's the goal. The goal isn't the fun, exciting, lively discussion you have at the beginning of class. It's getting into the scriptures and letting God talk to people through his word and make a difference in their lives. So as you're teaching, whether this is a church calling or whether it's your family, try both. Try diving off the diving board, maybe one jump or two. Ask yourself the question, why would this matter to someone? But then get into the pool, dive in, get deep, 
swim around, see what you can see, let people enjoy the water. All right, so to use my own advice, here's the diving board. I am a very unaccomplished and very unimpressive magician, unless you're my kids. Then I'm a very uh, magical person. I'm able to do a lot of cool magic tricks for them that they think are cool just because uh, they fall for all of the traditional magic uh, sleight of hand and deceptions and things like that. Now recently they've gotten really good, or they're starting to get better at noticing the deception. So they'll watch the hand that had the coin in it, even though I'm trying to get them distracted with the other hand. And so we've had to upgrade to YouTube videos and showing them some magic tricks on YouTube. And uh, it's kind of fun. I'll do a trick and then they'll, bo they'll, they'll try to do it themselves. And, and it's really fun. So we, we kind of have this, I've always had this love for magic. I, I had a magic set when I was a kid. And whenever I went to Las Vegas, I always had to go to the magic shows that were in the little magic shops. Um, but I've noticed that it's really frustrating as a very unaccomplished magician when someone figures out your secret. That's why magicians don't do their trick more than once because the thing that magicians hate more than anything is when their secrets are exposed. Well, here's a quote, a famous quote from President Ezra Taft Benson from a famous talk by Ezra Taft Benson called The Book of Mormon is the Word of God, April 1975 General Conference. He says this, The Book of Mormon brings men to Christ through two basic means. First, it tells in a plain manner of Christ and his gospel. It testifies of his divinity and of the necessity for a redeemer and the need of our putting trust in him. Second, the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ. Is it any wonder then that Satan seeks to attack, destroy, or distract us from the Book of Mormon because this book exposes the enemies of Christ. It exposes their tricks. It exposes Satan's tricks. If he is the master magician and is on an ever consistent quest to try and deceive us into believing something or doing something that is contrary to what we know is right, then this book is perhaps his mortal, most mortal enemy because it exposes his secrets. And so what we're going to do today is in this chapter, we're in Alma chapter 27 through 30, we're just going to jump right to chapter 30. Because in this chapter, this uh, scene that plays out between Korahor the Antichrist and Alma is a perfect chapter to study and expose the tactics that Satan uses. So let's dive in. Alma chapter 30 verse 6 says, it came to pass in the latter end of the 17th year, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla, and he was Antichrist. Uh, there's been a lot of definitions of Antichrist, but perhaps the one I like the best is just simply, Antichrist is anyone who teaches or does something contrary to Christ. Another way to look at it, we just got done learning about the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and sometimes there's a confusion there of why they have that name. Now, there's a couple of ideas about why they might have that name. We don't know for sure, but one of them is that um, the word anti, the root of the word anti, means an imitation of. So the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were Lamanites who were imitating the beliefs and the practices of Nephites, hence anti-Nephi-Lehi's. An anti-Christ, then, is someone who imitates Christ, but in an attempt 
to deceive or to draw someone away from Christ. So verse 12, the name of this Antichrist was Korhor. And then starting in verse 13, Mormon starts to narrate almost word for word what Korhor says and what he does to try and draw people away from Christ. Um, I really think that Mormon's goal in doing this is to draw attention to Korhor and set him up as a type or a symbol of the adversary. So that when you study Korhor, you're not just studying what some man 2,000 plus years ago said in order to get people to leave or to deny the Christ. You're studying um, how Satan uses these similar tactics today. Now there's a lot here, and hopefully what you'll do is open up Alma 30 and you'll go through with this lens looking for tactics that Satan uses to deceive us, or more personally, what's he using on you? What particular tactics is he using against you? I'm going to focus on just a couple that stood out to me and that I think will make a difference if we can identify them. So, number one, Korahor begins his, um, his magic show with an act that I've jokingly called the disappearing Christ. This is verse 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope, why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do you look for a Christ? No man can know of anything which is to come. In one verse, Korahor's goal is pretty clean. He wants to eliminate Christ from our minds and from our hearts. Verse 17, he carries this further. Many more such things did Korhor say unto them, telling them that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men. And then to jump down to verse 18, he also preached unto them at the end of the verse that when a man was dead, that was the end thereof. So he wants to disappear Christ and his atonement and life after death with which comes the resurrection. And I asked myself as I identify this, that that's his attack, why? Why would this be his attack? Why attack these parts of the gospel? Of course, the easy answer is this is the core of the gospel. Next episode, to tease a little bit, we will discuss a little bit more in detail um, why Christ is that center. But I'll give you a hint. If Christ is the seed of our faith, if everything begins with him, then if an antichrist or if Satan through his tactics can get you to unearth that seed because you doubt that it's a good seed or you doubt that it's a real seed, if you dig up the seed before it actually has time to grow, the seed will never grow. And you will never know that the seed was A, a good seed, nor will you ever have the tree that the seed is actually supposed to grow into. And so because Christ is that cornerstone, that foundation, because his atonement is so meaningful to us and because his resurrection is absolutely essential, if Korhor can get us to unearth that, then we never actually grow the tree of faith that Alma will describe in the upcoming chapters. So trick number two, emotional deception. Korhor throws some insults at the people that he's speaking to that uh, if you pay close attention, you notice the repetition of this. So we already read verse 13. O you that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. Why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Then in verse 17, then in verse 14, he continues on that you believe in the foolish traditions of your fathers. Verse 16, I like this one. 
You look forward and say that you see a remission of your sins, but behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your mind comes because of the traditions of your fathers, which lead you away into a belief of things which are not so. In essence, you're crazy or you're deluded into believing in something just because your parents said you should. Um, Alma is going to counter this exact point in just a little bit. But can I just say, because I get this all the time from, from youth, uh, this sentiment that we have to have our own testimony. I have to have my own converting, powerful experience. Now, I am not discounting that that is a definite and worthy goal for someone to want to have an individual testimony of the Savior, to have a personal relationship with him. But if I can say this, there is nothing wrong with building on the faith of others. There's nothing wrong with it. And Alma will say that coming up. Um, elsewhere in the scriptures, when it lists spiritual gifts, one of my favorite spiritual gifts that I have is, it says, to some it is given to know, to others it is given to believe those that know. I have the spiritual gift of believing and trusting those that know. I get a sense when someone knows something and I can put trust in them. Now, that's not to negate the fact that I also have my own testimony and things that I have uh, wrestled with and won in the way of testimony. But if you're out there thinking, well, Korahor's got a point. I do just believe things because my parents did, or I do just believe things because church leaders are telling me that. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we've built up a false culture that everybody needs to have an angel in the sky experience in order to be a member of the church or in order to have faith. And it's just not true. Faith at its root literally means to trust. And sometimes we have to trust in things that we can't see. So don't fall for emotional deception. Um, if, if you're interested, um, and I don't know how the best way to find this, you might just go to YouTube and search for it. There is, uh, as you maybe know, the church is producing a Book of Mormon video series, kind of like they did the Bible series. Um, I don't think this video is part of that, but there has been one video released that shows Korahor and Alma. And I have to kind of laugh because if you have watched the Kid History videos, one of the guys in Kid History plays Korahor. And so I have a hard time taking him serious because I always picture this little kid's voice coming out of his mouth. But the video, it's kind of a long video and it shows Korahor saying the things that we're reading here. But there's always a scene that I pause at because despite my giggling at the face in the video, there's one scene that I think he nails in an exchange between Korhor and Alma, where Alma is restating his personal testimony. Korhor does this, and I'm trying to describe it in words, this eye roll, smile, look to the sky face. And I always pause and whoever I'm watching it with, I always ask them, have you ever seen that face? When you profess your belief, have you ever seen or sensed that the face on the other side, that someone is rolling their eyes, either physically or, or figuratively, um, or smiling as if, oh, you believe in something that simple. How naive of you. How blind of you. I believe in something more solid, and because I know more, I now look down on you for believing what you believe. That's the game that Korhor is playing. 
What you believe is the effects of a frenzied mind. It's just because your parents believed it. It's emotional deception. Just like a magician's trying to get you to feel something in their show, Cora is trying to get you to feel something. And Satan does the same thing. If he can get you to belittle your faith, roll your eyes at it, or discount it, then, uh, then he can get you to leave it. The third thing that Korhor does is intellectual deception. And this one's a little bit trickier. See if you can catch it. I'm going to read just a couple of phrases, and it won't take you long to realize what it is that Korhor is attacking. Verse 13, we've read, this is now the third time. I'll go right to the bottom. Why do you look for a Christ? For no man can know of anything which is to come. Verse 15, how do you know of their surety? Behold, you cannot know of things which you do not see. Therefore, you cannot know that there shall be a Christ. Uh, verse 24, Behold, I say that you do not know that they are true. Verse 26, You also say that Christ shall come, but behold, I say unto you, you do not know that there shall be a Christ. Do you catch the trick? Korhor's intellectual deception is to try and get you to doubt the very things that you have worked and prayed and studied to come to know. Now, I talked with Krista right before doing this episode, and she wanted me to emphasize this point. She's currently reading the book Planted, which I think she'll probably bring up next episode since it's all about seeds and trees and, and all that. But one of the things she said, make sure that you express the idea that because just because people have doubts, we all have doubts and questions, that doesn't may, mean that you're sinning or that you're doing anything wrong. Questions and doubts are part of the process. Joseph Smith went into the grove of trees with questions and doubts, personal doubts, ecclesiastical doubts, um, and it was those questions and those doubts that motivated the first vision. And so please don't misunderstand me. Just because one of the tactics of Satan is to put doubt in your mind, to make you doubt the very things that you know are true, does not mean the same thing as saying if you have doubts, you're evil or you're doing something wrong. But maybe this can help. Um, if I can be brainy for just a bit. So I'm in the middle of this, uh, earning this doctorate. I'm the last semester of earning my doctorate, doctorate in education. And a large part of our study has been uh, the philosophical underpinnings of education, which means on the table is the study of what is truth, what is knowledge, and how do you get to know this? So you want some fun words. Ontology is the, the perception of what truth or what knowledge is. So my ontological beliefs are what I believe about the nature of truth. And I'll explain that here in a second. Epistemology is our beliefs about how we acquire knowledge or how we acquire truth. So my epistemological beliefs are what I believe about how I can come to know truth. So here's your brainy exercise. Korhor's ontological belief is that knowledge is concrete, it's discernible, it's static, and above all, it's visible. This ontology is called realism. He believes that there are solid and hard and visible things. And if something's not visible, if you can't see it, it's not true. It doesn't exist. His epistemological belief is we come to gain a knowledge of truth through observation or through science. Korahor aligns, and please don't misunderstand me, I'm not maligning scientists. Positivism is not, is not a bad thing, but it, I think it's helpful to understand that's what Korahor believes. 
Knowledge is static and it's discernible. And in order for me to come to know something, I have to be able to see it. Alma's beliefs are, of course, a little bit different. Alma's ontological belief is that God is concrete and discernible and unchanging. And his epistemological belief is that we can come to know God through intimate, emotional, personal interactions with him. Uh, this is a stretch because this is a technical way to use the word, but in a sense, Alma is what we might call a constructivist, which means that I, I construct knowledge. Knowledge isn't just something that I go out and grasp. It happens in relationships. In fact, he might be a social constructivist or a sociocultural constructivist. Um, I was asking some colleagues about this, and uh, the word they use, they, they said he doesn't really fit any model. Alma's Alma's a, a religionist. He's a spiritualist. He believes that there is a discernible God out there and that you can come to know him, but only through a relationship with him and his creations. So that's, again, a teasing for Alma chapter, for our next episode, Alma chapter 32, because Alma's going to tell you exactly how to come to know God. He's going to give you a step-by-step -step, um, experiment almost for how to come to know God. But I think it's important to identify that difference. Um, if you wanted to tune out the brainy part and tune back in, you can now. Um, one of the things I often say to people when they bring up the, the contention between science and religion is the purpose of science is to answer the questions of what and how. That's what scientific investigation is. The purpose of religion is to understand the why and the who. Science and religion are not competing efforts they're complementary efforts, but they get tricky when they start to cross-pollinate. For example, if science ever tries to make a statement about the who or the why, there are no scientific tools available for science to do that. So if it makes a claim about the who, it's invalid because it can't talk about the who. Religion makes discussions about the who and the why. And if we ever try and use religion to discuss the what and the how, that gets tricky. For example, if we're trying to use any scripture to discuss the exact details of the creation or the exact details of history, it's not the reason the scriptures are written. That's not to say that their account is wrong. It just means that's not the focus of scriptural writers. And so when Korahor says, long tangent, when Korahor says, you don't know, you can't know, He's attacking your belief, your trust in something that you have come to know through spiritual experiences. He thinks you need to see something to know it, and you don't. Satan argues, because you haven't seen it, you can't know it. And your response should be, yes, I can. I can know something in a spiritual way. The last tactic that Korahor uses is mind control. Magicians use this all the time. This one I caught just recently, just through this reading. Uh, listen to, again, the emphasis, starting in verse 24. You say that this people is a free people, but behold, I say they are in bondage. Verse 25. You say that this people is a guilty and a fallen people because of the transgression of a parent. Verse 26. You also say that Christ shall come. Behold, I say unto you that you do not know. Verse 27. Thus you lead away this people after the foolish traditions of your fathers. This one's tricky, but what Korahor is trying to do, we often call a straw man. What, what he's doing is he is setting up a straw man. He's telling you something that you believe that you actually don't believe, at least not the way that he says it, and then he knocks over the straw man. People fall for this all the time. Very standard political maneuvering, right? My opponent says this or believes this, which is just ludicrous. Everybody knows that's dumb. 
Well, of course the opponent doesn't believe that. I'm miscommunicating what he says so that I can knock over this straw man. Well, Korhor's doing the same thing. You believe this, but that's just silly. And you believe this, and that's just silly. And your teachers, your preachers, your leaders, your prophets, your apostles, they teach this. This is anti-Mormon 101. Let me take a quote from a prophet or an apostle. Let me spin it out of context and then come at you and say, see, see, look what your leaders have said. How can you possibly agree with that? Well, that's not what they're saying. At least that's not the way that they said it. That's taken out of context. And so Korah is trying for this mind control. This happens very commonly today when people try and blame LDS culture for problems in the world. They will say, Mormon church believes this or is doing this. And because of this belief or because of this action, it's causing this pain in the world. When, of course, the Mormon church doesn't believe or do that. People may misconstrue it that way or individual members may do things that way, but the church itself doesn't believe that. And so don't fall for the traps of mind control. Now, how do you fight back? Well, you don't. Alma doesn't. Listen to what he does. This is verse 39. Alma said unto him, Will you deny again that there is a God and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God and also a Christ that shall come. Verse 41. Behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. Verse 42. Behold, I know. You catch the counter. He doesn't argue epistemology ontology. He doesn't argue about the specific facts. He just responds with testimony. I know what I know. And then helpfully in verse 44, he explains four things that we can rely on when someone is attacking our testimony. Alma said unto him, thou hast had signs enough. Remember, Korhor wants a sign. Show me a sign and I'll believe. Thou hast had signs enough. Will you tempt your God? Will you say, show unto me a sign? When you have, one, the testimony of all these thy brethren, and also all the two holy prophets, three, the scriptures are laid before thee, yea, four, all things denote there is a God, yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of the earth and that are in motion and also the planets which do move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. I know there's a God because of the testimony of my brethren, the testimony of the prophets, the scriptures, and all things that denote there is a God. And that's all in addition to spiritual feelings that I have had that confirm that as well. In other words, when Satan comes at you through whatever form to attack your beliefs, to get you to doubt, to get you to question, when he says to you, you can't know, you don't know, it's the effects of a frenzied mind or you just believe it because your parents believed it, your response should be, I know. I know. And here's why I know. One of my favorite quotes um, that I've read recently it's from Elder Holland, and maybe you've heard this and remember it too. This is April 2013, Lord, I believe. He's talking about the man that comes to the Savior and asks for his son to be healed. And then the Savior asks, do you have faith? And the man says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Elder Holland makes this observation. Observation number one regarding this account is that when facing the challenge of faith, the father asserts his strength first and only then acknowledges his limitation. His initial declaration is affirmative and without hesitation, Lord, I believe. I would say to all who wish for more faith, remember this man. In moments of fear or doubt or troubling times, hold the ground you have already won, even if that ground is limited. In the, in the growth we all have to experience mortality, the spiritual equivalent of this boy's affliction or this parent's desperation is going to come after all of us. 
when those moments come and issues surface, the resolution of which is not immediately forthcoming, hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. And I would say that as a conclusion to this episode. When doubts come, you do what Alma does. You say, I know. I know. Interestingly enough, at the end of the chapter, this is verse 40, or 52, Korahor, who's been struck dumb as a sign, now says, or writes, I know that I am dumb, for I cannot speak, and I know that nothing save it were the power of God could bring this upon me, yea, I always knew there was a God. You know what you know. Stand strong in that. And if anything comes tempting you, trying you, challenging you to doubt, hold firm to the ground that you have and don't give up. Tune in next episode for a way to grow and strengthen that I know. How do you grow your I know? Or if you don't have an I know, how do you get one? Alma's going to be very specific, and Mormon puts these two stories right next to each other because I think he wants you to see, here's what it sounds like when Satan tries to get you to doubt, and here's your recipe for how to grow your faith. Thank you so much for listening to me and only me this episode. Next week, Krista will be back and we'll be back together. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Please share this with people that, that it might help, that it might benefit. As always, we'd love feedback and questions and anything that we could use to make this podcast better. Your input is very valuable. Follow us on Instagram at the Scripture Study Project uh, or email us at scripturestudyproject at gmail.com. And we will see you next episode.